This podcast is the exclusive property of Wild Law Pod, LLC. No portion of this podcast should be rebroadcast or reproduced without the express permission of Wild Law Pod. Welcome to the fourth episode of Wild Law Pod. I'm your host, Justin Kalal, and today I'm extremely pleased to have Professor Michael Duff from the University of Wyoming as my guest. Professor Duff is a vice chair of the Workers' Compensation Committee of the American Bar Association's Tort, Trial, and Insurance Practice Section, a fellow of both the American Bar Foundation and the Pound Civil Justice Institute. A member of the National Academy of Social Insurance, he is the founder of the Workers' Compensation Law Professor's Blog and the author of multiple books. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and in 2017, he received the University of Wyoming College of Law Extraordinary Merit Award for outstanding service to the College of Law and the University of Wyoming. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Duff. My pleasure, Justin. Thank you for having me. Before we get started talking about the origins of work comp, I'd really like to talk about the kind of less than traditional path you took to get to Harvard Law School. Sure. Um, well, I was one of those um, uh, folks who took a, a while to figure out what he wanted to do. I was a blue collar worker, um, basically went to work uh, right out of high school in 19, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't date myself, 1977, 78. Um, uh, started working, got a two-year degree at a community college, and then um, worked for almost a decade um, as a blue-collar worker. And actually, by the time I landed in law school, I'd already been out working for uh, 15 years because time flies when you're having fun. And um, and the Harvard uh, uh, piece of the story is a complete accident. And sometimes I get people mad at me when I when I sort of go through how accidental. Uh, much of my career uh, has been. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the accidental lawyer and the accidental professor, but I essentially uh, was a philosophy major at a small state school in Pennsylvania. And uh, my philosophy professors noted that I had a proclivity uh, for arguing uh, points uh, beyond uh, maybe w- uh, what they should be argued. Uh, uh, it was uh, just sort of a natural uh, orientation uh, um, owing probably a great deal to my dad, uh, who was uh, accustomed to cross-examining me at the uh, at the dinner table, and and little did I know how good he was at it until I encountered uh, people in the law who could not hold a candle to my dad, uh, and so. At the insistence of, of a small group of professors, really, I applied to law schools all over the country having no idea what I was doing, uh, just having some sense that I should probably apply to some local schools and to some national schools, and uh, I applied to um, a, a few elite schools and, and had the good fortune to uh, to get accepted at all of them, which is a nice problem to have, and, and finally uh, decided uh, on Harvard because it was dri- driving distance from my uh, my home in Philadelphia, and so I figured I could get back on holidays and weekends and so forth. So that was how I got there. Um, and then, of course, I got there and had no idea what to do next, but uh, somehow I made it through. That's fantastic. So did you grow up in Philadelphia then? I did grow up in Philadelphia, and I was a, a, a primary, a, primarily a blue-collar worker. I grew up in a kind of a lower middle class, middle middle class household. My dad Worked for the airlines for about 30 years. Um, my mom was actually a coal miner's daughter, which actually is the tie-in to some of my interest in um, in workplace issues and work injury issues. My uh, grandfather sadly uh, passed away uh, of black lung uh, when he was in his early 50s and made a big impact on me. And then 
when I went to work, um, I had more than my share of workplace injuries. I would uh, just uh, break a finger here and, you know, hurt my back there. And so I, I had a lot of familiarity both with the idea of workers' compensation and also with some of the struggles uh, that employees sometimes have uh, in getting claims paid. And I, I quickly noted that uh, whenever uh, I was interested in uh, uh, submitting a workers' compensation claim, uh, there was a period of time when people didn't want to talk to me, which I found odd. Uh, somehow I had become somebody's enemy, which I couldn't quite uh, figure out. But, uh, but so when I encountered that later in practice, it was something that was pretty familiar to me. So you always knew basically which side of the fight you were going to be on. I did, um, and uh, I would say that uh, I had some good success in the workplace because uh, I was not—I um, was never bashful about what side I was on. But I always tried to be fair with people. So uh, during a certain period of my work life, I was a union shop steward, and I handled a number of uh, uh, issues involving workplace injury and, and people who were out on sick leave and that kind of thing. And I developed a very good relationship with management because uh, I wasn't out to stiff anybody, and uh, I was just out uh, to ensure that people that even then I had a sense of representation and sort of the fiduciary nature of what I was doing. And uh, I had, uh, I, I developed a good rapport with management because once they saw what I was all about, um, I, I tended to get good results. And so stepping back just a little bit, I mean, in high school, were you a good student or mediocre or excellent? I was a very good student in high school. Um, I uh, made National Honor Society, uh, but I was a stubborn kid. And so my parents wanted me uh, to go right to uh, as good a college as I could get into um, out of high school. I wasn't interested in doing it, frankly. I was more interested in playing in rock and roll bands and, uh, and uh, doing what a lot of people might uh, interpret as wasting time. Uh, and I was uh, sort of determined to do it. And so my dad and I agreed that if I was going to do that, uh, a community college might be a better option for me and for his budget under the uh, circumstances. How did you end up working for the airlines then after that? So my dad worked for Eastern Airlines for 30 years, the wings of man. And uh, so and and during a period of time uh, uh, in the early 1980s, uh, the economy was really uh, getting battered. Uh, anybody that's old enough to have been alive back then. And uh, my best options were all um, happening at the at the airport, frankly. And so I worked for uh, the old Flying Tiger Line, which was an air freight um, uh, company, one of the original air freight companies. And then I worked for uh, a couple of other airlines. I winded, wound up with uh, U.S. Airways, which is now, I guess, part of American Airlines. And uh, I worked with U.S. Airways for about seven years. And so, uh, but most of my work experience was at the airport, lifting heavy things, uh, running forklifts into things, uh, hopefully not too expensively, uh, and generally banging around. Uh, not all of it is uh, completely clear to me in terms of memory, but, uh, but I, I kept myself occupied during that period. So you're having a good time. You're making decent money, playing in rock and roll bands. What pushed you to study philosophy before law school? The philosophy, uh, it, it, just studying philosophy, I'd always had an interest in philosophy. And, uh, and at a certain point in my late 20s, I decided I wanted to, uh, to go back to school and study philosophy. I read a lot. Uh, so uh, mixed in with all that fun I was having was 
was a, uh, a reasonably prodigious uh, reading schedule that I kept up, and um, and I used to harangue my uh, my blue collar workmates with. Um, uh, quotes of uh, Heidegger and so forth, and they they suggested to me that um, some of my observations might be um, more effective in an appropriate uh, setting, uh, like a college, for example. And so I went back to uh, back to school, and then had the good fortune of running into um, a small group of philosophy professors who were incredibly accomplished. It was just complete luck. So uh, most of my professors were. Ivy trained, and um, my mentor was a guy named George Cleghorn, who uh, was from Brown. Uh, he was a scholar of the theologian Jonathan Edwards, and I spent a good uh, deal of time hanging out with those guys, and eventually they badgered me uh, into applying for law school or doing something beyond uh, my bachelor's degree, because what happens is if you keep attempting to pursue a bachelor's degree, uh, if you're not careful, you'll actually get one, and then that suggests that something else has to be done next. And so that's that's essentially what happened to me, and then I applied to law school, and the rest is history. As a fellow philosophy major, I understand completely the need for additional education to seek employment after that. Uh, There's that degree. too, yeah. <laughs> um, were you full-time or part-time with your philosophy degree? I was full-time. So for a couple of years, I went to school full-time, and I worked full-time. Um, that was an exciting period. Um, and so, uh, but it was, uh, the job was uh, extremely flexible. And because I was working in a unionized environment, uh, I had tremendous control over my schedule. So I knew with certitude that uh, I could take a chemistry lab at eight o'clock in the morning or something because I knew that I could stay reliably on second shift and I didn't have to come in for mandatory overtime or anything like that. So that was a big deal for me. And then you must have then fully committed to the practice of law once you decided to go to Harvard? Yeah, so um, once I made the decision to go to law school, uh, I didn't know much about what area of law I wanted to go into, although it was pretty evident that workplace law uh, was what I was most interested in. Uh, and, I, and I did have uh, some uh, understanding of workplace injury, of um, employment law, traditional labor law, conflicts between unions and employers, all of that was sort of um, intrinsic uh, to my uh, personality at that point because I'd, I'd been through a number of uh, labor issues during my, my working life. And so I was, I was committed to that path and I was committed to uh, doing law in some kind of a labor environment. Well, that's fantastic. I think now we should probably shift gears and kind of start to uh, talk about the origins of workers' compensation in Europe and then look to wrap that around into some current issues in Wyoming. And I guess, like the King said, uh, let's begin in the beginning uh, with the work comp origins in Europe. Yeah, so it's, it's a story that isn't especially well known. I mean, if you talk to most American lawyers, uh, even those who focus on workers' compensation, uh, they're often not real clear uh, that workers' compensation as an idea actually developed in Europe, and, uh, and you can almost pinpoint it to a particular rail project. Uh, uh, the French were notable laggards in the development of rail transportation in Europe, and um, so much so that uh, they started hiring English contractors, right? So um, uh, the, uh, they hired an English, English contractors in the 1840s, uh, who were building a uh, rail line from uh, Paris 
Turan. I know I'm mispronouncing that, but it's it's not far from Le Havre. And, um, and they figured out that if they paid for work injury through insurance on this particular rail project, uh, that they were saving a lot of money. They were saving um, um, transaction costs uh, arising from litigation. There was some, there wasn't a lot. Um, and uh, it just seemed to go smoothly and more efficiently, right? That's the first instance we have in Europe of a workers' comp uh, type of program being applied, in this case, to a particular uh, work project. Um, but from there, we, we have all kinds of things going on in the United Kingdom. And uh, I just recently blogged on this. Uh, and what it boils down to is that you had the English um, over a period of time um, expanding the electorate. So more and more and more people were getting the right to vote. Beginning in the 1830s, um, the electorate doubles uh, uh, by, the, uh, by the early 1860s. Then it triples by the 1880s. And what you notice during that whole period of development, and it's happening in, in Europe um, in a slightly different process as well, is that more and more workers are having input into the democratic process. So the... One of, the, one of the things to know about workers' compensation is that it really emerges from the failures of English tort law, uh, that there were all kinds of problems with um, English tort law, some of which even modern lawyers will be familiar with. So, for example, if you attempt to prove a tort case, uh, there's a series of elements that you have to, that you have to prove. And, and when you're studying tort law as a student, you say, well, what's so hard about proving duty and breach and causation and harm. And then you get into the real world of legal practice and you find out uh, maybe we're not so sure what the duty of an employer is, or maybe we're not so sure how the injury happened, or maybe there was no breach of duty. It was, it was simply an accident. Um, and so all these kinds of things are happening uh, throughout the mid 1800s. At the same time, uh Aren't we seeing almost an exponential increase through the Industrial Revolution of just workers being maimed, killed, I mean, and chewed up by the machine? That's absolutely correct. And, um, and so the English, and I'll focus on the English because ultimately we adopt the English workers' compensation statute, but obviously industrialization is emerging all over the European continent, right? So everybody's having more or less the same kinds of problems. And you're absolutely right. Um, you've got um, huge trains that are thundering through the countryside, setting towns on fire. Uh, you've got people being maimed uh, by machinery that uh, uh, no one could have imagined uh, two or three decades previously. Uh, you've got people mining in a way that hadn't been done previously. Uh, you've got the development of a coal industry in the, U in the United Kingdom in England. Um, so all those kinds of things are happening. And and people are trying different things. It's not like there wasn't an attempt to, um, uh, to deal with safety um, in, in many ways that we're familiar with. So, for example, if you've got a dangerous machine that's pulling uh, people into the machine, often um, um, children, uh, one of the things that you might think to do is to fence that machine, to put a, to put a gate around it, to, to, to put guards on the machine. And so the very earliest uh, English uh, statutes uh, uh, really focused on things like that. Let's fence machines. Let's um, um, uh, and and let's start to inspect for danger. 
So you have the emergence of an inspectorate um, in England where people are starting to go into these factories. Let's look at the machines. Let's, let's go down underground and look at the mine and look, look, um, look at what the face of the mine uh, looks like. Look at what the, uh, you know, the supports in the mine look like. And so you get a lot of these kinds of things that are attempted but you can imagine what the what the problem is. This will sound familiar uh, to modern listeners. Uh, yeah, we found we found that you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Now what? Well, maybe we should impose a fine. Do you really want to impose a fine? Isn't that? Wouldn't it be better to cooperate uh, with this uh, with this employer? Uh, maybe we'll get better results if we just see cooperation. And the problem was that didn't work. And then the next thing that you might try um, is, that, well, wait a minute, don't we have a body of law that says that if you negligently hurt somebody, that you're responsible? And the answer is yes, but that process takes time. It costs money. And there were a couple of really interesting obstacles to uh, what I'm describing, which is a tort claim, um, that uh, was not resolved uh, actually until close to the end of the 19th century. One was um, the rule in tort used to be that the survivors of a, um, of a victim, of an accident victim, could not bring um, an action in tort. So the tort action died with the victim. That wasn't resolved until 1846, uh, stat English statute called Lord Campbell's Act. And that's an important act because that sets one of the preconditions for workers' compensation, uh, because before that act passed, um, you didn't have to worry about uh, liability from tort, I mean employers, because one of the things that's going to happen is that tort liability is going to increase, and eventually what we wind up with is a compromise uh, where we, we end up with a workers' compensation system that's going to get oh money into workers' pockets a lot more effectively, not as much money. But in every worker's pocket, even even workers that are injured, uh, not uh, as a result of anybody's fault. So you have Lord Campbell's Act, which basically allows for bringing lawsuits, uh, survivors to bring uh, lawsuits. And then you have um, the abolition of something called common employment. We know it uh, as the fellow servant rule. And so the idea was, well, uh, when you go to work, in a, in a workplace that's dangerous and you know about it, um, essentially, um, unless the employer is directly involved somehow in the mechanism of injury, um, we're not gonna hold the employer liable. And, and we, because it's often, it's a fellow employee who's, who's involved in that mechanism of injury, right? It's some, a coworker, and so forth. And we didn't even have the principle that an employer could be liable because of the actions of its supervisor or manager. And so at the same time, we're kind of also seeing what's contributing to this is kind of a huge cultural shift where workers also have like value as human beings, whereas maybe just 50 decades or 50 years before, they really didn't in the eyes of their employers. I think that's true. And I also think we have an emerging consciousness on the part of workers themselves, because um, what begins to happen is that you have employees and, and it's I don't think it's um, it's an accident that um, as 
employees are gaining the right to vote and they're, they're starting to have input into the political process, um, that they're also obtaining the right to uh, organize into labor organizations um, that become more sophisticated and more aware of how workers are getting injured, why they're getting injured, what the limitations of tort law are. Um, I, for a period of time, workers would have no idea, for example, that um, you know their, um, their survivors wouldn't be able to bring an action on their behalf. They might not even have known how dangerous their work was. One of the sort of classical um, um, sort of objections that some folks have to regulation is, well, aren't workers, shouldn't workers simply negotiate for higher pay if they know that the job is more dangerous to ensure against the possibility of, of uh, their being injured, that they'd have some money set aside for themselves, for their family. Uh, the problem was that workers didn't know how dangerous uh, the job was, and that didn't happen until later. So all of this is kind of percolating in the mid-19th century, which is, uh, I, I admit to being kind of a nerd when I, it, with respect to, I really love uh, mid-19th century uh, history from about 1860 to about 1900 because so much was going on. Um, it's almost, um, uh, we, we experienced some of this as we move, as we've been moving into a, um, a hyper-technological -tech, uh, age. Well, this was a similar period of history in the sense that people are moving from um, a more or less agricultural environment to a mechanized um, industrial environment that was unprecedented. And the way that folks made decisions about how they were going to solve problems that they were confronting, um, all of those tactics are still with us. That's why we can talk about something called workers' compensation while we still have it. And so early on, what was the driving force? Was it the employers or was it the government or the workers who were demanding and getting these inspections of, to determine that things were actually dangerous? Early on, I think it was a combination of, it was, it was the government. There actually, um, I mentioned um, inspectors, the inspectorate. Um, some of the earliest agitators for improvements in working conditions were these inspectors whose job it was to go down and look at the dangerous working conditions and so forth. And they were the ones that started making recommendations as to how the workplace might be made uh, safer. Now, um, obviously, throughout all of this, there is a um, there's a moral uh, component. Right. And so you would always have, for example, churches that would be involved in um, um, uh, uh, objecting to some of the conditions that people were, were living under. But I think we get sort of agitation from the government um, uh, in the beginning stages in the first uh, two or three decades of the 19th century. And then as we move on, we get much more, um, uh, much more involvement uh, by workers themselves. And, uh, and uh, as they get more involved in the political process, then we have um, members of parliament, for example, who are, who are very involved in, in trying to work out uh, a policy that's going to be successful. Well, and how did the societies deal with these? I mean, because I mean, we're getting people injured on a scope and scale that has never been seen before. And there really aren't social structures at that time to deal with it. So, I mean, what happens at that time to the person who loses both arms or is blinded? I mean, do they just basically have to throw themselves on the mercy of a church? or? A yeah, and we have some poor laws, uh, what are called the poor laws and, and corn laws. There are some anti, uh, some rudimentary 
anti-poverty uh, kinds of uh, uh, statutes that emerged during this uh, period. So there's some of that going on. There's an awful lot of uh, sim uh, simple charity um, that that's being extended. Um, and so uh, the, not a lot good was going on. And, and what I what the, the uh, example, one of the things I think is interesting, I, I've been focused on England and Germany. Uh, we had the emergence of a uh, of a robust social insurance system that's sponsored by Otto von Bismarck. And the reason that's sort of interesting is, you know, Otto von Bismarck, I don't know how many of, uh, of your listeners uh, will remember Otto von Bismarck from history class, but, you know, he was the chancellor of blood and iron. And it was all too much for the chancellor of blood and iron. Uh, this idea, this specter of people laying around, as you say, without limbs or, you know, maimed or killed and, um, and widows and orphans. It was too much in, in the United States in the early, um, the early debates on workers' compensation in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt was an ardent advocate for workers' comp. And the thought was you can't really, um, you can't really be in um, what... Uh, those observers uh, characterize as a Judeo-Christian society, um, where you know you with a with a sort of moral substrate, and think that it's okay to have people laying around bleeding on the uh, on the courthouse steps. That was a little too much, even for some of those some of those folks. Well, and at that time in the United States, we were dealing with also a, kind of an unprecedented uh, time of greed and a race to see who could make the most money. So you've got some really conflicting interests that. Led to a real power struggle here. Well, I, at the fundamental level, uh, you have uh, a conflict between uh, laissez-faire conceptions of uh, industrial capitalism uh, that are uh, beginning to butt up against uh, notions of, um, well, regulation. We have to do something to control the secondary effects of this emerging um, industrial capitalist structure. Um, and so you, you, you definitely have this, um, uh, this brewing conflict, um, and, and, and you had uh, a number of people, I mean, probably beyond the scope of our discussion, but when we get into uh, the early 20th century and you have the, the advent of uh, Taylorism and, and scientific management and the notion that you can control these things, if you sit down and think about it, you can actually come up with systems that are better than um, just allowing the machine to run, even if it's running off the rails. So what was the first uh, kind of birth of work comp in uh, the United States? How did it begin here? So um, I've written an article about this, and um, the probably the easiest way to put it is that you have a couple of different groups that begin, uh, one of the which was the Russell Sage Foundation and also um, a, um, a conglomerate of um, early uh, pre-workers' compensation commissions, um, you know, um, state at the state level, um, administrators who had been dealing with sort of labor issues generally, who in um, both groups at around 1908, 1909, um, um, almost independently of each other, uh, they, they each go to Europe and they investigate uh, the workers' compensation systems in Europe. And, um, and essentially what they find is uh, that this is a well-known structure in Europe. The first real workers' comp structure, national structure, is probably Switzerland 
1874. So you already had a quarter century of the operation of workers' compensation laws, or a little more, uh, by the time these investigating groups arrive in Europe. And they have a real opportunity to sample what they like about certain statutes and what they don't like. Um, and essentially what they wind up doing, um, each of these groups independently, is uh, they, they come to the conclusion that the English system is probably going to work better than the German system. Now, this wasn't completely unanimous. Not everybody agreed. But the problem with the German system was it was enmeshed with um, a whole social insurance system. So, for example, it wasn't just workers' compensation in Germany. It was um, um, sick sick leave, like national sick leave. It was um, a much more um, uh, involved uh, system of social insurance generally, and in many ways very advanced for its time. Um, and most of the observers came to the conclusion that um, importation of this kind of a system into the U.S. was going to cause constitutional problems. Um, and, um, and that the English system, while it might present constitutional problems, and it did, um, they weren't going to be as uh, as severe. And so there's this kind of settling upon uh, the English system. And at that time in the European systems, were they all based on the idea of kind of a no-fault system? Yeah, they were, um, although the, the idea of a tort right was, say, different in France or in the Austro-Hungarian Empire than it was in, in England or the United States. Um, so you had um, injury remedies, but um, we might think of them a little differently. Um, so there wasn't the same kind of issue that we would deal with in the U.S. when we're thinking about, you know, well, we're going to have to eliminate a well-recognized right to a tort recovery before we can implement this workers' comp system. A little bit different in Europe. And so in Europe, had it always been kind of a no-fault situation for injured workers? No, um, it, it, you, you still had some kind of a fault-based structure in Europe. Um, and so there, there was still a transitioning to this idea of an administrative, uh, an administrative remedy. It's just that the lines weren't quite as stark in Europe as they were um, under, the, um, under the English common law. Um, so that there was, there, was more, uh, there was more flexibility, I think, under that European uh, uh, structure. Uh, certainly there was a French tort law or an, Austri an Austrian tort law, but it was a little bit different from the English common law and uh, uh, remedies being tied to Magna Carta and that kind of thing. And so when workers' compensation is just in its beginning in the United States, how does the fault of the worker or the fault of the fellow employee play into the early systems? So everybody recognized in the United States that um, there was what was referred to by um, labor advocates, the unholy trinity of um, assumption of the risk, contributory negligence, and the fellow servant rule. And um, the transition to workers' comp um, is preceded by something that is frankly a little more menacing to employers. And um, these were known as employer liability statutes. And the idea of an employer liability statute was that um, employers were going to lose most, if not all, of the affirmative defenses in the unholy trinity, and um, but still be liable for tort damages. 
So the plaintiff would still have to prove the elements of a tort prima facie case, duty, breach, causation, harm. But having done that, uh, the employer would have fewer defenses uh, at their disposal. And by the way, uh, the first liability statute is the, uh, the FELA statute, the Federal Employers Liability Act, which was enacted in 1906, declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court, redone, reenacted in 1908, and upheld, which is sort of interesting when you think that we're in the Lochner era at this time, and uh, they allowed the FELA statute, which applies to railroads, um, to, uh, to be enacted, okay? So I think what's going on is that employers see the writing on the wall. Um, there are more, by the way, more tort lawyers um, on the scene, many of whom are um, first-generation immigrants uh, to the United States who are going to law school and learning uh, what uh, you and I learned in law school about the elements of a tort claim and saying, well, I can... I can make this argument, and uh, and uh, they had uh, plenty of clients uh, to practice with, which I think often is what was what was going on. And I don't say practice necessarily in the most organized sense. Um, and uh, there's this sense that tort liability is coming; it's it is encroaching; it's coming sooner. And you know, it's the nature of a, of tort that uh, you only need one good case, one one dramatic case. Uh, to put an employer out of business if the damages are sufficiently um, um, high. And, uh, and so you begin this sort of development of an agreement that's going on um, amongst the major stakeholders. And so in this, these early statutes, once you remove the affirmative defenses, which were almost an impossible bar, what is the remaining duty that the employer would owe the employee? So under the common law, um, that's a good, that's a really good question because as we get industries um, that are, are nascent, right? We just, we have the beginnings of uh, industrial workplaces. We can sort of generalize by saying that the employer has a duty to provide a safe workplace. Um, as, uh, which, is, which is ambiguous, which is vague. Um, but safe working conditions, um, now that represents a gamble once we have something that vague uh, in litigation for both employers and employees, right? What, is that, what does that mean? How do we know what the duty is precisely? And, and of course, this is before the era. Now we, a lot of these things can be handled through devices like negligence per se, where you have a regulation say, that defines the duty of the employer in a particular workplace, right? Back then, there weren't really any regulations, or, or they're very limited. So we really were in open space, open texture, if you will. And that created uh, uncertainty, uncertainty for both sides. And I think this had a lot to do um, with creating the impetus for a negotiation, bargaining around the idea of workers' compensation is this kind of unknown tort terrain that we were wandering into. And that would be a huge risk. And I'm sure a lot of employers, it was kind of a 50-50, but then there had to be a substantial number who knew that they basically had an unreasonably unsafe work environment for their employees. Yeah, I think it's, I think that in um, industrial workplaces, um, and, and by the way, there's a great book uh, by uh, John Fabian Witt, 
uh, called The Accidental Republic that I recommend to your listeners. Uh, it's a fantastic account of some of the things that are going on uh, during this period. But uh, if you, you, there's no, it's not a question of whether you're going to have people killed or injured or maimed. We, we have records of, uh, of injuries from that period, and they've been described as like battlefield reports. Uh, you know, if you worked for the railroad uh, in the first uh, decade of the 20th century, um, you had a very high chance of being seriously injured or killed. So this was not, there was nothing academic about this. This was, uh, you were going to have workers, they were going to be killed. And some of that killing and maiming was uh, obviously going to result from activity that could um, reasonably be characterized as negligence. And so where do we see work comp developing first in the United States? So the, a lot of the activity uh, builds around the New York statute, which is actually first passed in 1909 um, and declared unconstitutional by the uh, New York Supreme Court called in New York the Court of Appeal. Um, and so there's a lot of reaction to that finding of unconstitutionality. But a number of states, despite that decision by the New York uh, Supreme Court, uh, decide uh, to go ahead and enact statutes. And we get a series of them in 1911. So 1911 is the first time that we see multiple workers' compensation statutes being enacted. I think Wisconsin may have been the first. Um, and then we've got, and then we get, act, we get activity um, in virtually every year between 1911 all the way to 1922. It's a, it's a remarkable story how quickly these statutes come online. Um, uh, and we've got my, uh, Wyoming in the same period, uh, 1914, 1915. I mean, they're all coming online at about the same time. Um, now, interestingly, the idea of workers' compensation isn't finally signed off on by the U.S. Supreme Court until 1917 in the, uh, uh, the White, uh, New York Railroad v. White case. Um, and it's in 1917 that uh, legislatures around the country have a degree of confidence that these workers' compensation statutes are going to be upheld. So it's so one of the one of the results of that is the early statutes that we get, uh, including Wyoming's, are very cautious. Uh, they apply um, um, in a mandatory fashion only to extra hazardous occupations, which is why under the Wyoming statute you ha you still have vestiges of that characterization of extra hazardous. The statute technically applies only to extra hazardous employments, but the definition of extra hazardous has been expanded um, over the years. Um, but a similar process was going on all over the country. You have, we're going to only apply it to extra hazardous occupations. Why? Because we think we can make the best argument that we really need them in those occupations. And those are the only occupations that we're going to make workers' comp mandatory um, concerning it. Everybody else, it's going to be elective. And what was the constitutional issue that was holding them back? So the question really is, um, are you really going to allow state legislatures to wholesale get rid of tort remedies and damages? Um, and interestingly, um, it's still, I, I, I have a habit of uh, pressing my students with the following question. What if tomorrow the state of Wyoming decided 
we are simply not going to have tort law anymore. It's, it's more expensive. Um, it's more trouble than it's worth. And we understand this means losses will fall on individual people. We're just not going to have it. We're going to eliminate tort law. We're going to eliminate workers' compensation law. We're going to eliminate injury law. So the question I ask my students is, could a state legislature do that? And, and uniformly, they will say no. And I'll ask, why not? Uh, and there is no U.S. Supreme Court case that says that a state could not jettison its tort law. In fact, the White case is often relied on um, as support for the proposition that if you're going to sweep away tort, you have to have a reasonably just substitute. But if you read that case closely, what it says is that we'll assume for the sake of argument that there's some point beyond which you can't go. But we don't have to actually take that question on because that's, and they were talking about the New York statute, that's not the statute that we have in front of us, right? So it's never, it's, um, it's never been decided. And in fact, uh, there are a couple of cases where the Supreme Court says it's an open question whether a state would have to provide an adequate tort compensation system in exchange for uh, some um, uh, elimination of tort rights. So, so ponder that. Well, and I, you mentioned the ultra-hazardous, and I think that that's one area of Wyoming law that just kind of boggles my mind is, you know, there are lots of things that, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the statute exactly, and I can't, but uh, there's lots of work in there that doesn't seem very dangerous that's included in uh, ultra-hazardous and receives automatic work comp coverage, but then you have a huge section, to me, that's extremely dangerous work in agriculture that it has the statutory exemption and it's somehow not considered ultra-hazardous work. Well, you know, it's a historical artifact. Um, all of the early statutes had references to extra-hazardous. But the approach, the drafting approach in most states was to simply explicitly eliminate references to extra-hazardous employment and make the law applicable to every, every employment, you know, with some limited carve-outs. Agriculture is a, is a very common carve-out, not only in workers' compensation law, many areas of labor, uh, labor and employment law, and there are various arguments in support and against, uh, and against uh, that development. Um, but it's a historical artifact, and what Wyoming did, rather than eliminate, eliminate references to extra-hazardous employment, was they maintained, uh, the legislature maintained the references and simply expanded the categories of employment to be designated extra hazardous. Now, I don't really understand that choice. Um, I've thought about it. Uh, I, I suppose that one, one possibility, one explanation is that if you, it looks like maybe nothing's changing <laughs> as you add employments as opposed to what seems a lot more dramatic, which is we're, we, you know, we're simply going to eliminate references to extra hazardous and everybody's going to be swept up. And there might be political resistance uh, to the idea that now you're going to require this of most employments. Whereas if you maintain references to extra hazardous and then sort of through administrative almost incorporation, it's less visible what's going on. But it also could just be, uh, you know, there, there's just... Um, there are reasons, uh, drafting reasons, that you might want to maintain uh, references to extra hazardous employment. Maybe you're not quite so confident 
that the workers' compensation project is going to continue to be upheld as constitutional. Um, it's hard to know why those choices were made. But, but, that's, uh, but you're absolutely right. And I've made the point that, for example, um, there are uh, you know, workers at the Walmart warehouse in Cheyenne are uh, not covered by workers' compensation. Uh, because they're not engaged in extra hazardous employment. Well, I mean, just as a matter of, 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 of grammar and definition, uh, that seems right. Well, they're not engaged in extra hazardous employment. And yet, in many, many other retail um, uh, establishments and entities, those workers are covered by workers' compensation. And so um, there's definitely a political dynamic going on here where one of the larger private sector employers in the state uh, can carve out um, an exemption from application of, of, uh, of the workers' comp statute. When I tell people in other parts of the country about this, they, can't, they actually can't believe it, you know, that, that, that that's happened, but that's the case. Well, and to me, it feels like a real equal protection issue too because over the last few years, I don't know why, but I've had several clients who were injured working as ranch hands, and to me, that's almost, you know, that's a very dangerous job. You're on horseback every day. You're working around large animals. You're often welding equipment. And these people have no protection. You know, they're left with the old tort remedy, which often isn't very good for them. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, uh, in terms of equal protection, uh, there actually was a New Mexico case uh, decided a few years back, uh, West Brands Dairy, uh, in which um, the workers' comp statute, uh, which did not apply to certain uh, ranch and farm hands, uh, was uh, it was that that eventuality was challenged uh, under the Equal Protection Clause and under the New Mexico Constitution, uh, it was found their exclusion was found to violate equal protection. Now, equal protection is a as a constitutional doctrine um, has problems because usually, if a legislature has a rational reason, almost any articulable reason for doing what it did, it's likely to be uh, upheld at least under federal equal protection analysis. So, but there is something that doesn't feel right about it, just on um, equitable grounds. You know, why do we exclude categories of workers? Why at one point did we exclude undocumented workers, right? Um, that's, a, that's an entire, that's another area of discussion. Um, and so anytime there are carve outs, um, it's problematic. And, uh, and even if it's true, and I think it is true, a state like Wyoming, where under Article 10, Section 4 of the Wyoming Constitution, uh, you can't, a legislature can't reduce uh, damages for, uh, for physical injury. Uh, it's built into the Constitution. In fact, we couldn't have a workers' compensation statute in Wyoming without a constitutional amendment because of Article 10, Section 4. Uh, but okay, that gets you a tort suit. And the problem is uh, not everybody is injured uh, by negligence. I mean, most workers who are injured are probably not injured by negligence. And so you have a very large uh, category of folks, if they're cut out of the workers' comp system, who don't have a workers' comp statutory remedy. And it's very unlikely that they have a tort remedy. And, um, and so uh, what do we do about that? Well, uh, that's in the domain of the state legislature, but, uh, but at least I, I hope we recognize that's true. And on the equal protection front in Wyoming, there, there has been a case that's gone to the Supreme Court. I don't remember the name, but it involved a gentleman who was working as a maintenance 
provider for like a rental home or a mobile home park and somehow the legislature had carved out an exemption and they talked about equal protection but under those facts they felt like basically his job wasn't dangerous enough which kind of leads me to believe that if if a truly dangerous job went up before the supreme court they probably would find an equal protection for that worker i think that the uh, wyoming system is extremely unique in that sense that we still have this connection to the idea of extra hazardous employments uh, that still exists explicitly within the uh, within the Constitution, within the workers' comp uh, statute. And so I think arguments are available uh, in Wyoming that, that probably wouldn't be available in other places. And one of the interesting things about workers' compensation is that you have 50 separate, actually 51 separate workers' compensation systems at the state level to, to say nothing of federal workers' compensation systems. So it's, um, it, it's an interesting dilemma in terms of how you approach um, the, the substantive law uh, uh, from state to state. And when I teach uh, workers' compensation here at the University of Wyoming College of Law, I have students from Wyoming and I have students from Colorado and from some other places besides. And um, it's challenging to teach it as a multi-state subject because it is so um, uh, uh, tailored, so much, each statute is tailored uh, to the state uh, that created it. Uh, there, there are guiding principles. There's a lot we can say uh, about workers' compensation that, is, uh, that will hold true from state to state. But there are all kinds of idiosyncrasies between states that we have to think about. Uh, and whether we represent claimants or we represent um, insurance companies or employers or uh, uh, represent uh, the state of Wyoming and the Attorney General's office, uh, there are uh, issues that are unique to the individual state systems. Well, and Wyoming is somewhat unique in the fact that we still allow fellow employee claims. How prevalent is that on a national level? I would say that's a minority position, um, but I, I understand what the rationale is uh, for maintaining the suit. And again, uh, ironically, that has a lot to do with what your state constitution says about tort remedies. If your state constitution protects tort remedies in, um, uh, in any kind of a heightened fashion, it's harder to eliminate uh, tort suits. So that theoretically, you might say in some states, well, obviously we can eliminate um, the right of an employee to bring a, a tort suit against a co-employee. If that's a state that has essentially said, we, um, uh, we're essentially going to allow anything, anything goes with respect to the interplay between workers' comp and tort. And if we've got to sweep away a tort remedy, so be it. But if you happen to live in a state where tort Enjoy, enjoy some kind of a protected status, Florida comes to mind, Florida is a good example, um, then it might be harder to do that. And why is Florida a good example of that? Florida is a really interesting case. And, and for folks who follow uh, workers' compensation law, um, you, they may have noticed that an awful lot of uh, contentious cases arise from Florida. And um, it's a little bit inside baseball. I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story as quickly as I can. Uh, essentially, under Florida law, the Constitution is periodically almost reauthorized. There are constitutional conventions, and I can't remember, maybe every 20 years, um, where the whole Constitution is reconsidered. And in one of those periods of reconsideration in the late 1960s, 
um, the drafters said something like this, that um, the, uh, the common law is protected as a matter of constitutional law. And um, I'm overgeneralizing, but not by much. Uh, so essentially what happens is that if that includes tort. So if tort is a constitutional right, by definition, you can't eliminate tort as a constitutional right without establishing in its place a workers' comp remedy that is, um, that is a reasonable substitute for the eliminated constitutional right. That analysis isn't available in most states. In most states, tort was never a constitutional right. So it was actually easier to substitute tort with workers' compensation because you weren't interfering with a constitutional right. Florida is different. And therefore, when you talk about, uh, just to take a couple of issues, um, the um, uh, total temporary disability benefits in Florida, uh, uh, the length of time that a worker could receive those benefits was shortened to, I think, I want to say 104 weeks, two years, um, and that was challenged on constitutional grounds, and um, and that period uh, was found to be too short. It's actually a little more involved than that because there was a period of time where technically you were eligible neither for temporary total uh, nor uh, permanent total. So there was a like a donut hole uh, where so so that was. But the but the main point is that what caused the problem was that tort law had been constitutionalized in Florida so that any kind of tampering with workers' compensation simultaneously triggers um, uh, constitutional issues because is workers' comp still an adequate quid pro quo for the tort right? The tort right is constitutionalized. So almost anything that comes up in workers' comp, inadequate attorney's fees because in, in workers' comp becomes a constitutional issue. It would not be in other places because it's not a constitutional uh, right that's being pursued uh, when we're talking about work, workers' comp benefits. And so kind of tying it all together, um, and I know that you're working on a book on Wyoming workers' compensation. Yes. How do you feel that Wyoming workers today are faring kind of under the grand bargain? Well, um, it's, it's actually an interesting time to be talking about this because there's an awful lot of talk out there in the political landscape about Medicare for all. Uh, and I just wrote a blog post this morning uh, discussing some of the workers' comp implications of uh, Medicare for all. Um, I, I would say uh, that one of the problems with, that, uh, with the grand bargain, a couple things I'll say. First of all, at the time when workers' comp was established, uh, contributory negligence, assumption of the risk, those affirmative defenses that we've discussed, acted as an absolute shutoff to a tort claim. So in other words, if you're a worker, you're working in the rail yard, um, you picked up a hammer with a rusty head, and uh, you did something to injure yourself, um, and the argument was made that you contributed to that injury, you're out of luck. You have no tort claim at all. You're done. Um, in an era of comparative negligence, right, where it may turn out that, well, yeah, you shouldn't have used that rusty hammer, and maybe you were 10% responsible, but surely the employer was 90% responsible for having that rusty hammer there in the first place. Um, you would have a tort claim that would be worth more now 
than it was then. So one of the big sort of policy questions when we talk about in trying to answer your question, well, is it, I mean, how do workers make out um, under, the, uh, under the grand bargain? I would say that anybody that had a viable tort claim in 1911, 12, 13, 14 is not making out well at all. Uh, they're making out pretty poorly because it's pretty hard to argue in light of what's happened with comparative negligence, for example, that the trade that was made at that time continues to be a fair trade. On the other hand, uh, anyone who is injured purely by accident, and we'll assume that that's the case, uh, under the old regime, that person would have gotten nothing. All right, and it's always important to remember that, that they would have had no recovery. That person would have had no recovery. Um, and so whatever the, uh, such a person receives under the current regime, even if we think on some level, on a moral level, it's not right. It's not right that somebody should receive a monthly benefit that's so low. The reality is that under prior law, they would have received nothing. So it's harder to argue that that person is not better off than they would have been in a world with no workers' compensation. I'd rather have a bad workers' compensation remedy for somebody injured by accident than no workers' compensation remedy. But if we're talking about the successful, somebody who would have been a successful tort claim, and I'm assuming that it's going to be super hard to bring a tort case, right? It's going to take time. It's going to take money. A lot of folks who have a meritorious tort claim can't bring one. Because of that, assuming all of that, I still think that it's very hard to argue that tort uh, people who would have been successful tort claimants are better off under this system than they would have been uh, under, under tort law. That's a, that's a hard argument to make. But the, the reason that it's so hard to address is because we actually are talking about these global comparisons for which we don't have... Um, we don't have the statistics that we would like to have. One of the reasons I'm thrilled to be... Um, uh, working with the uh, National Academy of Social Insurance, uh, and I've been added to the uh, data panel uh, this year, is I'm going to be directly involved in looking at um, uh, injury statistics uh, and things of those kinds, because I think that's how you answer the question. And I think Medicare for All, this sort of agitation um, for Medicare for All, good, good bad, wise, unwise, it's going to drive a lot of these kinds of reconsideration of the system that we're operating under now, because we all know situations in which, um, whether we're talking about injured workers, whether we're talking about people who don't have access to health care, um, I think that there is a mood out there um, that the system that we have now, when looked at in total, sort of in a, with a global view, is not doing everything that we would want it to do. I would agree 100%, and I think that that Medicare for All will definitely, if it goes through, it will change every aspect of injury law from workers' compensation to torts. Um, it's going to be different. No question. Well, that's right about an hour. I've got to say thank you very much. That was wonderful to talk with you today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and, uh, and uh, check back with me anytime you like. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs>